Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, it's We Have Ways of Making You Talk Thursday special edition um, and we are delighted to be joined again by Guy Walters but we're not going to talk about Nazis this time or are we? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so they might slip in. They might there. slip in. They might, they might pop in, pop up. Um, uh, Guy, what are you doing with your lockdown um, extra time at home staring at four walls? I mean, you know. I'm, 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 I'm doing things like this. No, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually planning a couple more books at the moment. So uh, at, at the time of speaking, it's too early to say where they're in the bag. But that's partly yeah. thanks to the excellent uh, Holland J uh, that those might come about. So I'm very grateful to him. Um, and I'm also teaching my son to drive. So that is it. Oh, Christ. So it's like being, it's like being a frontline soldier. Every day you go to bed oh. alive is a good day. You know, it, it's uh, a... <laughs> my, my, my dad, there's a... Um, the village where my parents live, there's an old there's an old um, airfield at the end of the road, basically, um, that was a that was a Wellington training station, I think. And um, and he took me up on there. He used to have this old Land Rover, you know, proper old Land Rover, double D clutch yeah. thing. And he took me up on the airfield and just said, all right, then off you go. <laughs> he just assumed I knew you had to put the clutch in and then take it out and all that sort of thing. We, oh, we kangarooed. 
Kangaroo started around this, you know, great big stretch of runway, <laughs> defunct runway, and then he drove me home. And that's the only driving lesson he ever gave me. And then my poor, mo- my poor mother had to take over. <laughs> I did loads with my son. I quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, I, I, I found I was a, a surprisingly calm um, co-driver. I, I, it, was, it was really all right. I, we, we kind of bonded. It was great fun. Oh, that's nice. No, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. And it's not it's not as good. Na- you, yeah, just as you're saying, Al, it's not a natural thing, changing gears and doing clutches. If you've never driven no. a car, you know, why, why would you know how to do that? It's insane. Why would you even? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not something anyone explains to you while they're driving. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, okay, you might so want to put on the brakes for... rather suddenly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Now, so uh, last time we, we spoke to you, we talked about um, hunting evil um, or, or not. Um but uh, the, the thing I think we, we, that you really want to talk about, and this is actually a thing that um, has been bugging me for a really long time and, and sort of has fed into the stand-up I do, actually, is the, the legacy of the Second World War in, in British culture, in UK political culture, popular culture, um, and not just, you know, uh, all the chaps in red shirts who come to uh, red trousers who come to Chalk Valley History Festival who, 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 who want to who want to per, perv on the panzers and the Shermans or whatever that James is and listen and, and enjoy the roar of Spitfires. <laughs> that, that there is there is something really uh, interesting and deep and textured, isn't there? Yeah. The war in, I mean, even just calling it the war. It's become in, our national mythology because we don't have a national mythology. The Greeks and Romans yeah. do. The, 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 the old Norsemen had their Thor and Odin. And, and we've never had a sort of mythology in that way. And it's become it. Um, it's become it certainly for a certain part of the population, shall we say. Because you now have these, you know, what do mythologies need? They need a host of characters, goodies and baddies. And they yeah. also need some truly epic events and battles. Um, yeah. And what is the Second World War? It has all that in space, uh, yeah. and, it, uh, and it and it offers it you. It offers it you even if you look at the British Empire and how ghastly the British Empire w- was was, and the thing, the crimes of empire. The Second World War offers you an out. Yeah, in that doesn't it's it? It's a morally it, very comfortable war. Last good, you know, and you could say it's the the only, you know, and if you're of that, if you're of that tilt, even if you're, uh, uh, if you you can say, we, at last we did something right. At last we did a good thing. It's the only good thing we've ever done, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it, so it offers people of all persuasions uh, 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 this mythic yes. um, texture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think conflicts, you know, as you say, empires is problematic. Conflicts after the war are problematic. Suez, Iraq, uh, Falklands is, is problematic for some. Um, and so therefore, you know, you look at the Second World War and as you say, it, it, it's a morally very comfortable war. If you fought... On the Allied side in the Second World War, you can go to bed at night thinking you fought on the right side. Are we the go- yeah. are we the goodies to invert the exactly. Metzler web sketch? Yes, we exactly. are the goodies, um, exactly. and, and it's very very easy. But I think that also it's this idea that you have the way that we behaved in the war, or we felt that we behaved in the war, um, and and the national identity derived from our wartime experience that that I've argued in talks feeds straight into from blitz spirit to Brexit spirit. Um, and then, of course, recently with the coronavirus, uh, you, you, the, what's the first thing that happens it, is that 
our experience of Corona is instantly compared to the wartime experience. Uh, yeah. and, and rightly or wrongly, in, in some ways, it's perfectly correct in terms of innovation, R&D, um, things happening very quickly. Um, yes. Well, uh, and, it's to- and it's totality. And it's, I, yes. mean, I, I, mean, I mean, I suppose the other reason we compare it to Second World War is the only other history people know popularly is Henry VIII. Right. right? So it's not like it's not like you can <laughs> compare the coronavirus to Anne Boleyn. No, or it's a lot like Thomas Cromwell because basically, if you if you've come through the, the, the you know and and history obviously is a massive hot potato politically and and the, the you know the coalition government made it so you know Michael Gove really made it so and there was a, there was a lot of pushback about the idea of making history more sort of. Uh, 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 you know, there's arguments about it being pub quizzing and all that sort of thing. But the history people in this country know the two things they definitely know about uh, uh, Henry VIII yeah. and, and the Second World War. So, I mean, it's, it's little wonder that we've ended yeah. up. And I, and, I th- compa- and I think that the propaganda put about by the war for good reasons about British exceptionalism, you know, we're on yeah. our own. Um, you know, yeah. only, you know, we can stand against it because, you know, for, I know that you know, Jim has an absolute perfectly good argument that we weren't so technically on our own. But in terms of this idea of the fact that, you know, of course, we had a huge empire. But but the, the fact is, we, we felt on our own and the propaganda said we're going to have to do this on our own. And and that, of course, then feeds in. But even that's really interesting because I saw uh, David Edgerton gave a lecture last year at my old college about about exactly that, the myth of alone. And so he's he's done, a, you know, he's done a Google search on newspaper editorials from 1940. And they're all about that. And all the propaganda, and there's that famous car- cartoon, all right, by low, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. But but the, all of all of the editorial at the time is we with our empire will withstand this. That even at that point, which we now look at as the alone moment, they weren't saying that at the time. And and he he's combed through it all. And and I went to this lecture. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and what happened during the war itself is that the the, the Tories obviously. Um, they think right. Well, we're going to have to we're going to have to um, uh, find a, a, a conservative argument for why we've done so well in the war. And yeah. Labour, being anti-imperial, have to say create this idea of the exceptionalism of the British character, which means the working class need to be rewarded. The Tories, it's because we're British that we're special, and we're well beating. That's how we've done this. And so by 1945, the, the, their two stories of, of transmuted into basically national national arguably nationalist expression of how the war's been dealt with that then feeds into 50s 50s accounts but, 60s but Al, historiography so 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 you've got you know Angus Angus Calder in the 60s people's war is yeah. writing a sort of is writing a, a you know an exceptionalist account of the Brit- why but the that's also and, and what really but, happened it's really but, interesting, but that that the the, the um, that also comes out at the time of Corelli Barnett and also AJP Taylor and kind of, yeah, sort of yeah, rubbishing yeah. it, you know, yeah, sort yeah. Of saying that the British economy was absolutely rubbish in the Second World War, that we were all a bit shit. Yeah, and 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 what I think is really interesting is you start you see these changes. So in the 19, late nineteen forties and late nineteen fifties, we're broadly going. Do you know what we did a damn good job? And and so you have six three three squadron and the damn busters and stuff that sort of. Um, celebrating British brilliance. Then you get yeah. the sixties, and you get the kind of you get the start of the declinist movement, and you that's also tying in with um, 
end of empire, decline of Britain as a great power, three-day weeks, all the rest well, of and, it. Well, and fear of, <clears throat> fear of a third world war as well. Fear of the third world war and, and the yeah. emergence of USSR and the United States as the two superpowers and sort of Britain squeezed in the middle. So that kind of earlier kind of sort of dominance in, in global affairs has just been, has been crushed. And you can't sort of quite believe that Britain could have ever been this sort of dominant position that had the world's largest navy, the world's largest um, yeah. trading empire, etc., etc., etc. And so there's this kind of sort of realignment. And, and at the same time, you're getting Dad's Army and It Ain't Half Hot Mum and this idea of sort of ridiculing the kind of sort of British war effort and sort of celebrating British amateurism and backs to the wall and sort of, you know, general kind of crapness and all the rest of it, which is all very funny. And it was all part of our kind of sort of self-deprecating kind of approach to humour. But... But it feeds into this idea that we're all just sort well, of hanging off the shirt tails of the Americans, all a bit rubbish, and just sort well, of somehow it, managed to hang also, on. But, but also, it, it, if, if, if I wanted to tell a, a national foundation myth, which is where we, where we started here, that the birth of the modern Britain, that, you know, of course, has the welfare state and the NHS as, the, as its start, as its, pro, as its fruit, as it were. This myth gives birth to this modern Britain that we live in. I'd rather tell a story about how we were on our own. We were plucky. We yes. scraped through by the skin of... It's a better story. Yeah, it that is. is a be- that is a better myth than we had, the biggest empire in the world, a military machine that had been, uh, been you know, warmed up and tuned only 20 years previously, a long tradition of, of fighting our enemies at arm's length because of our preponderant um, uh, naval strength, blah, blah, blah. You know, the actual... The, the, the story that you tell, James, in, yeah. in your history... The story of the underdog is more I'd sexy. Not- I'd I'd much rather be the plucky underdog who who scraped through the end rather than the, the, the great big grinding war machine, you know. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. Imagine, it's September 1944. Jim Gavin is nervously clambering up the gross big heights. He's sure he's forgotten something, but what can it be? The sky begins to darken and he opens a bottle of beer. A fine local Dutch beer. That tastes good. God damn it, he shouts, his brain suddenly alive. We've forgotten to take the bridge. Man, 30 car will be here any moment. Let's go take that bridge. As soon as I finish this lovely beer. Now, Beer 52 didn't exist in 1944, but if it did, well, old Jim Gavin might have remembered his primary job just that little bit quicker. Beer 52 source the best craft ales from around the world and deliver them to your door. Each month they send you eight beers, and if you sign up now, you get the first case of eight craft beers for a fiver. That's right, a fiver. Just go to beer52.com talk to get your first eight beers for five pounds. There's no obligation. You can cancel any time. That's beer52.com talk. Hey, Jim, get a shift on, will you? We haven't got all day. So as well as the right creating this sort of idea of uh, uh, this political construct of sort of nationalism, you've also got the, uh, the left also using the war for its own ends as well. And so they call it the People's War. Um, and yeah. you can see there's a whole subsection of the BBC website that was assembled, what, about a decade ago, in yeah. which was called the People's War. And that's a left wing idea. It's well, actually this is it Angus, a socialistic enterprise. Well, this is Angus, Call, Angus, Angus yeah. Calder, isn't it? Yeah, who's famously, whose father was involved in the propaganda effort in the war to, to try and to try and get people to mobilize you know uh, uh, and so he sort of inherits that um that idea i mean that's really interesting in itself because during the brexit during the brexit shenanigans there was a lot of like mockery of say mark francois going on about well we didn't 
we didn't, my dad didn't fight the Nazis on the beaches of Normandy. And Anne Whitaker, Well, but the thing is, all right, so it is ridiculous when people crap on about the war uh, and how they won it, even though it was their grandpa. But it's also kind of absurd for someone to go, well, we invented the health service in 1947. It's the, the, yeah, the, there's, only, there's only the beverage report only, was commissioned before the war. Well, I know exactly, but there's only but there's only there's only three Churchill. years separating those. T- yeah. There's only th- well, no, but there's only three years separating those events. If one's absurd to claim credit for you in you doing it, then w- why is the other one politically sound to claim cl- claim credit for? If you see what I mean, and it's very interesting how that how sticky the the people's war um, uh, uh, idea is. Whereas the nationalist one is kind of the one that we've. I'm sure we all find funny. I mean, when when Marc Francois does do, do his thing, when he goes on about, you yeah. know, um, uh, his dad on D-Day, you think, oh, whatever, mate, you know, you, your name's Francois. And everyone starts laughing at the fact he has a French name and so on. I think, and all this yeah. sort of stuff. Whereas, the, whereas the, when the left say, well, we create the NHS, it, it, it's it's a stickier idea and one that, 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 that you know. It's, it, it's cuddlier, yeah. isn't it? And I, But I also think... Well, exactly. Not, and a, yeah. a lot of this does come down to the... Because we're talking about mythic... We're talking about mythic things. It's what they, myths are there to give you comfort and to help you to figure out, yeah. who, define who you are, and and make you make decisions now. But in and terms of giving so comfort, the right use it to give comfort. Because do you remember yeah. when the Luxembourg Prime Minister um, kind of uh, empty podium Boris Johnson uh, yeah. during the Brexit thing, and Ian yeah. Duncan Smith, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, turned round and and said, "We didn't fight the war for the Luxembourg Prime Minister to sort of humiliate our Prime Minister like this." And it's that feeds back to this no, idea, we didn't. this idea that, that we didn't. That, that <laughs> Our obligation to Poland. That somehow the rest of the, Europe is still in our debt. And of course, yeah. that infects the, the, the way we talk to the rest of the world. Um, yeah. If you feel that even, you know, Luxembourg, France, you name it, they actually owe us something. Um, and they've always got to behave in a certain way because yeah. uh, uh, we supposedly stood alone for a few months in 1940. I mean, it's just nonsense. But the other thing is, the other thing is, is that we've become, we've become sort of increasingly mawkish about, about it as well. So... You know, the first big commemoration of the end of the war, VE Day, after 1945 was 1995 because it was the 50th. And there was this sense that in the 50s and 60s, you know, all those war veterans, um, they're just getting on with their lives and they're kind of sort of putting it behind them and they're they're sort of getting married and having jobs and having kids and the kids are kind of, you know, the Beatles are coming to the fore and, you know, it's that brilliant scene in A Hard Day's Night where the stuffy stuffy bowler-hatted man in the... in the carriage says says to the Beatles I fought for the I didn't fight the war for you type or I fought the war for you types and John Lennon goes I bet you wish you hadn't and uh, and you know there's that kind of sort of rebellion against it and then suddenly in 1995 we all kind of sort of realize oh my god you know these veterans they're getting to their 70s now you know they're not going to be with us forever and it's a 50th so it's a big obvious one to kind of to celebrate and ever since then We've absolutely gone to town because we realise that these guys, this generation, is slipping away, and and you know that's the whole point about but the seventy years. Jim, there is there is this. I mean, I've I've we've discussed before about memorialisation fatigue, and it's interesting you mentioned the Battle of Britain because when I prepare my talk on this, I looked at 
uh, cabinet notes from uh, the the Macmillan's cabinet when they're trying to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And the cabinet turns around and says it's not appropriate to commemorate the Battle of Britain. If there's going to be a commemoration, there can be a hall of residence at, at Sussex University um, named after the Battle of Britain or, and, it, and, and a the, roundabout and, in Lincolnshire. And the and, RAF, the RAF are livid, aren't they? Yeah, because yeah. They're, rolling, they're rolling up RAF schools. That's when you get that guy flies the hunter under Tower Bridge yeah. uh, to protest that RAF's fight, the RAF's fighter strength is being wound down. Yes. And, and they're going, we saved the country 20 years ago. What's, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you doing this to us? And obviously, and you've got that whole thing where they're, they're, they're developing Blue Streak and all this yeah. Cold War kit yes. to replace... The end of the fairy oh, Delta II. OK, listen, listen to this. I've got Harold Macmillan, April uh, 11th, 1960. Harold Macmillan to the Secretary of State of Air. I suggest that to go on holding uh, this big Battle of Britain exhibition on Horse Guards Parade, holding it year after year, will become increasingly anachronistic. The 20th anniversary seems as good a time to call a halt as any. Well, right. he's a so, guardsman. So, so, yeah, right. <laughs> but but, there, but, it, but it's this idea that also, but amongst that cabinet, and it wasn't, and I take your point about the RAF and them turf war about the RAF with other services, but also there was a genuine feeling, not just with the Battle of Britain, not just the RAF, that the, the, the war was not something you commemorate in the way that we now commemorate it. And so when I looked at Times reports of 1954 D-Day celebrations. It's about two inches on page 4,000, and bewild- a couple of bewildered French people saying, uh, and a couple of bewildered, you know, people walking around. Really, very little happens. And of course, as it goes on and on, I mean, my argument is that I think there's become an over memorialization. People getting fatigued with it, and the sentimentality of it starts getting excessive. But, but um, here's a here's a comparable a, a, a point of comparison I'd like to offer. In the Soviet Union in the 70s, they, they realised that basically, um, you, you know, the Brezhnev government thought, right, OK, we can't deliver this utopian communist state that we've promised everyone. So what they did was, was began a propaganda effort. And this is where you, to say to people, communism is worthwhile because we defeated the Nazis in the Great Patriotic War. And that is where, the, 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 and then the war becomes central to the story of the Soviet state. And that, that, you know, Nazism, the only way the only way you could possibly defeat Nazism was through communism. Not communism is now going to deliver you a beautiful future. But look at the look at the past it won for you and look at the to the you know, and that explains how we live now. And I think a bit part of part of what's happening here is our politics has basically, you know, is essentially they've run out of things to argue about, which is how you end up with a thing like Brexit. They've run out of things to actually do. <laughs> so you end up, you end up having to justify the way things are by leaning on your myth and leaning on your foundation myth. And I think that's why the war permeates things so much more is because after all those old battles of left and right kind of got run out of town in the last 25 years, you know, with the, with con, you know, consensus politics ends, then there's a new cons- post-Thatcherite consensus that, you know, you've had a wobble, the Labour 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 tried to change tack on in the last five, ten years, but, but don't seem to have succeeded in doing so. So everyone ends up leaning back on the Second World War. And it's not, it's not at the level like it is in, in, in Soviet Russia and then post-Soviet Russia, where it's like a, it's the Great Patriotic War and it's, you know, it's a thing people still go on about and still how they, do, how they still define themselves. But we still go on about it and we do still define ourselves with it. And I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting point in comparison because it's the countries that won the Second World War where this is happening. Whereas in Germany... They've taken 
They've used it as an opportunity to take stock about questions of morality and <laughs> the limits of the state and, and, uh, and, and you know, that, 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 that lo- losing is the thing that, 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 that's been the thing that's... I mean, you know, we need to get a German on to talk about that or several generations of Germans to talk about that. Because the way they you, you, always, you always learn more about yourself if you've lost a fight than if you've won a fight. Well, it, well it, exactly. Exactly. And maybe what you, you don't... Anyway, I mean, I, I just think this, I think this is so endlessly fascinating. And we all grew up on Action Man, Airfix, The Great Escape, um, uh, you know, khaki, the khaki glamour of the 70s, which is interesting that, that, that the previous decade they're saying, the politicians are going, we can't go on commemorating this. And then we bloody well did anyway. And there was nothing anyone could do about it. You know? Yeah. I mean, but, but I do I think mean, what's in interesting way, is, is, you know, as, as we've got on to the kind of sort of the 50th, the 60th, the 70th, the 75th and, and the 80th, um, uh, and we're now approaching 80th anniversaries. It is really about the veterans now. It's about, yes. you know, it is about the fact that this is a generation that, or an ordinary generation that was asked to do extraordinary things. And I think the thing about the Second World War is it affected every man, woman and child of all the major combatant nations in a way that no other conflict has. So there is that kind of sort of, that sort of deep resonance because of that. The problem, of course, is, is is that we but we venerate these ju- we venerate all these people quite rightly, and yet I mean, there's a brilliant book by um, by Keith Lowe called um, "The Fear and the Freedom" and uh, analysing it, and he's saying, you know, not everyone was a hero. I mean, not everyone. Well, of course, you know, well, and, and it is sort I mean, of that, slightly that, but... problematic. You know, we have become sentimental. We have become slightly mawkish about this. Well, I mean, the Battle of Britain fighter pilots in the fifties, very few of them went to the annual Battle of Britain service uh, at St Paul's or Westminster, wherever it was held. And in fact, there was, and again, just looking at some of these documents um, from Q, I looked at a few months back, uh, and saying, you know, literally, so these chaps were probably what in their thirties, you know, so they were young, their forties, and 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 they never turned up. They had no interest in going um, for whatever reasons, private reasons. It was too painful, or they didn't think they should be sort of valorized in that way. And 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 then when they got as old as fifty, um, it was the some of the powers that be didn't want all these old men in their fifties walking around. <laughs> it kind of looked bad. So I mean, it's and it's so you're right, Jim. I mean, it, it should be about the veterans. If it's not about the veterans, and then if it's just a, if it's just sort of empty pageantry, then for my money, it's a waste of time. But that sounds quite normal to me. That that that's like um, I've only just started thinking about going back to my old university college from when I was nineteen twenty one. Not int- I wasn't, I've, I've just not, I've never been interested, mm. you know, uh, my callow youth. And I know that their callow youths were spent quite differently and not in a callow way. But you know what I mean? That, that when you're 30, you, you don't think, oh, you know, wasn't it brilliant when I was a lad? Even and, and, and also, I mean, I remember your, when I came to your um, Great Escape lecture at, at the REF Club, the, the point you made about a lot of the people in in those um, uh Camps of uh, airmen, prisoners of war. They've been in plane crashes. These people. They've gone through really horrifying things. Um, so probably they weren't that interested in revisiting a lot of it. Because after all, everything you read about being a Battle of Britain fighter pilot is absolutely terrifying. So you you add those two things together. Of course they didn't go. Yeah, no, you're right. You know? It is interesting what you're saying. Like you, Al, I've suddenly found myself going on these somewhat nostalgic trips and actually refriending yeah. people from my sort of you know, yeah. uh, late teens and, and university time, yeah. which, which has actually been great. But I think you're right. And, you know, I'm what approaching 50. And I, I suspect that, you know, some of these chaps at that age probably then did start getting into it again. So when would your Battle of Britain fighter pilot been born? What, 1920? 
Yeah. So in 1970, perhaps then he might have started by by your metric. He might have. But it's incredibly typical that you you after the war you come back, you get demobbed, you get into civvy life, you you settle down, you get married, you have kids, you're you're, you're focusing on your career, bringing up your children, all the rest of it. And it's not until for a lot of people, it's actually even a little bit later than that. It's more like sort of mid 60s, early 70s. You suddenly got a bit of time on your hands and you, you've got that time to analyse what happened to you. Think about it. And suddenly a letter comes through the post saying, you know, would you be interested in joining this sort of, you know, ship's um, association of HMS Kelly? And, and you think, well, oh, it would be quite fun to go and see some of those guys in exactly the same way that you think, oh, it would be quite fun to go back and see some of my old university mates and visit my old haunts. And so that's why you get this sort of sudden kind of flush of of flurry of of um, veterans associations suddenly springing up in the kind of nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, and and it is why nineteen ninety five the VE Day celebration of nineteen ninety five in May nineteen ninety five was such a massive deal because it was the big one. It was fifty, and it was kind of you know everyone who'd fought in the Second World War was now retired. They've got time. And, mo- and mobilised. And, and mobilised yeah. and think about it. And Hyde Park was just absolutely enormous. There was a veteran's centre. There was a tent where you could go in and, and, you know, every squadron, every battalion was listed in there and you could go and see who was there and hook up with your old mates and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. And that's what... And, and at the same time, you then think... Then, then you start talking about it. So by this point, you've got grandkids and the grandkids are more interested than the than the children were at their comparable age because there's that much distance. And they go, oh, tell us the stories. You go, oh, you don't want to know about all that nonsense. Um, uh, and they go, yeah, we do, yeah, we do. And you sort of think, well, actually, I've got time now. I might I might jot down my memories and I'll do it for my family. And then you think, actually, I'm rather good at this. I'll get it published. And, you know, you drop off to pen and sword <laughs> or William Kimber and off you go. And that's why, it, 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 that's how it develops. But we're now at the absolute... Yeah tail end of that because of course so, these guys are all in their kind of mid to mid 90s at the youngest so but so here's the question and uh, and when will the second world war end is it like uh zuen lai and the french revolution it's too soon to say because because you know if the french revolution is france's national founding myth then then you know 1940 stood alone uh, is arguably uh, uh, maybe an English, maybe maybe a British foundation myth, in a, in the way that you know 1940, in the way that 1945, um, British and Imperial forces victorious isn't. If you see, if you see what I mean, when when is the war? When is the Second World War going to end? Because you're it's our generation who are, who, who who are most into it. I I, I expect my kids' generation. Um, Aren't I mean they have to do I, GCSE? Well, Nazis, I, I, don't my they? my yeah. hunches. I mean, I gave a talk about you know this this topic uh, to my yeah. son's school and I to the sixth form, and I then asked them at the end of the talk, you know, how much do you guys think about the war? How much do you read about the war? How much do you watch Second World War films? Yeah, and they just shrugged their shoulders. It, it really isn't as sort of important for that generation, I yeah. suspect. As uh, it is I, for us. I, I mean, you got to remember. No, well, I, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was when oh. when when I mean. I, I couldn't give a toss about the Second World War when I was eighteen or seventeen. Not a thing. Well, you, well, you, yeah, well, just wasn't interested. And I think the thing, (laughs) well, I think, but I think the whole thing about history is it's the one subject you you study at school 
that you can then revisit in later life. And, and I think it's not until you get to your sort of late 20s, 30s, 40s that you, you start to kind of wanting to see that bigger picture and that you actually look beyond kind of, you know, girlfriend's next party, whether you're going to get a 50 in the next cricket match or score a hat-trick in the football match. You, you know, because your, your childhood horizons are so narrow and they just get broader as you get older, inevitably. And I think what is really interesting is, is that the kind of hardcore readership of of Anthony Beaver's books and Max Hastings' books has been generally a kind of older one. What's really interesting about this podcast is the vast majority of people are under 50 that watch it. And, yes, and, that and, is... and actually a majority are under 44. Um, and that, yeah, that to true, me, yeah. suggests that there's a kind of, that it's going to keep running and running. They may have been brainwashed like me by their father, though. You know, <laughs> maybe that they, they well, have that no control too. over themselves. So, so, <laughs> so for us, the war is never over. Yeah, but I, I, mean, so. it's, I mean, it's at some point, but I think I think well, it'll or it'll change again. It'll change in in what people really think about it. I mean, it's I, it, we. I mean, obviously, we we have talked about this forever in this country. And we we the three of us could talk about this forever. Is the simple truth. But I think, ah, uh, gosh. Anyway, well, thanks very much, guy. <laughs> it's pleasure. just so endlessly fascinating it's so big it's such a vast subject there's so much human drama there's so much nuance yeah. to it there's so much tech um it's just yeah. you know you can yeah. you can make yeah. models about it you can see spitfires flying you can go to sicily and see battle damage in an old bunker you can go to you know Actually, you can go to the zelo heights and see trenches you can flip it out you can go to manipur state and see um british foxholes and, and trenches and mortar pits from the battle of infall what's not to like I mean, it's amazing well actually we've got this far and we haven't asked you um what your favorite marcus spitfire is guy i feel like we've um oh, I, I, I got i just don't know anything about spitfires i don't i don't what? know anything about them i don't know anything i uh, pro- probably the nice one I don't, uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right Okay, well, I think I think the spit fire. I think it's time. I think it's time to say goodbye, guys. Honestly, <laughs> well, thanks very much for thanks very much for talking to us, and we we'd love you to come back and talk about the Great Escape again at some uh, or with us at some point. That'd be really. Fantastic. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers, Will. Enjoy Cheerio, everyone. Cheers. <laughs>